Okay, so um, this morning we're just going to keep going through the Gospel of Luke. We're going through the Gospel of Luke one section at a time. This morning we're doing Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, which is the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's one pericope, one little Jesus story. But we are going to be doing something new, something crazy, something never before attempted by any living Valleybrook pastor this morning. What's going to happen is, in a moment, not right now, in a second, I'm going to ask you to, you don't have to get up, but identify groups of like three or four around you, and then I'm going to ask you questions throughout the sermon, and you have to answer the questions in your groups. And you only, don't worry, it's still mostly a sermon, there's just a few questions that you'll get two minutes at the max to answer in your little groups, okay? So it's going to be preach for a little bit, question, preach for a little bit, question. And the reason I'm doing this is because this morning, I really only have one big point. We're going to cover, we're going to read the story, and then I have one big point about the Mount of Transfiguration, but it kind of takes a while to make this point, to close the loop. And my biggest fear, my biggest dread is that you would walk out of here saying, wow, Caleb seemed really animated, but I have no idea what he was saying. He was so opaque and foggy that he was unclear. So to kind of mitigate my own unclearness, I'm going to have questions throughout the sermon that you answer in your little groups to help make this one big point make a little more sense. Also, it's just fun. You get to talk during church, and that's kind of fun. And it keeps you accountable from falling asleep, because how embarrassing would it be if you fell asleep and then it was question time and you were asleep? You would never show your face around here again. Okay, so actually, I have a, <laughs> I have a warm-up question to kind of grease the wheels. So everyone, identify your groups. You can all be in the same family if you want. It can be a little more than three. But these are the warm-up questions. What is your favorite Bible story? And if you could play a professional sport, which would it be? Okay, you have two minutes, but everyone has to talk or I'm not moving on. And then we'll be at stuck at church forever, okay? Okay, so in your groups, talk for a little bit. Two minutes. Okay, 20 seconds. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. No more talking. No more talking. Is that good? Everyone, everyone got their stories out? Everyone? That's okay. Did anyone say David and Goliath for their favorite story? Micah, yes. Judah, obviously, if killing a giant is clearly the coolest story in the Bible. <laughs> yes, obviously. Okay, very good. So you got a taste. That's what we're going to do. Preach a little bit, questions, preach a little bit, questions. So um, we're going to read the story, Mount of Transfiguration. I have my one big point, and then I lied. I actually have two very tiny baby points at the end, but they're each only so small, they're quarter points. So it's one and a half points total. One big point, two quarter points. Okay? Here we go. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's read our story. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
Okay, pause. I have to remind us what's going on in the life of Jesus. What's previously on the life of Jesus? What's been going on? So this is a map of first century Israel. And the Gospel of Luke that we're going through, the Gospel of Luke is broken into three very clear movements or acts like a play. The first movement in the Gospel of, Ac- uh, in the Gospel of Luke is chapter 1 through chapter 9, verse 57. And through that whole section, Jesus is up here in Galilee in the north, announcing the kingdom of God. So he goes to a town and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he does kingdom miracles and he teaches kingdom sayings and gives kingdom parables. Um, And then uh, at the end of 957, we go into the second act. And we're almost done with the first act of the gospel of Luke. In the second act, Jesus faces Jerusalem and he starts a road trip. And the second movement in the gospel of Luke is a long road trip where Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem and he stops at every town on the road and he kind of gathers a following and more people are with him and he throws banquets and the Pharisees throw banquets, but they don't invite him, but he crashes the party anyway and people are threatening each other and he parades all the way up into Jerusalem, which is Palm Sunday. And then it switches to the third act in the gospel of Luke. And everyone thinks he's going to inaugurate his kingdom, but he does only by being crucified. And the passion of the Christ is the inauguration of the kingdom, which he was talking about in Galilee and on the road trip. And then he's resurrected from the dead and commissions the citizens of his kingdom. So that's what's going on in the gospel of Luke. We right now are right at the end of movement number one. He's just about to start his road trip towards Jerusalem where he will die. And what just happened last week, the sayings that just got finished last week, Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi with his apostles. So he he leaves the crowd and he says, hey, who do people say I am? I've been doing this kingdom announcement for a while. Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some think you're a prophet or an apostle. But Peter says, I think you're the Christ, the son of God. And uh, Jesus says, very good, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now I must be handed over into the hands of men and be tortured and crucified. So I am the Messiah, but I'm going to die. And you guys are coming with me. So that was what just happened last week. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to die. And you're coming with me. After he finished those sayings is when he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. He has just revealed to them this crazy paradox that they don't understand. Now he's taking them up to pray. Okay? That was all previously in the life of Jesus. Now we're back to today's episode. And so as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. So that's a great story. I love that story. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And they're like kind of falling asleep when they pray. Has that ever happened to anyone? Very good, being honest. Uh, if people falling asleep when you pray, it has, it's apostolic tradition. 
That's a theology joke. That would have killed at seminary. <laughs> Falling asleep when you pray is part of apostolic tradition. You can use that on your friends if you want. Um, so they're falling asleep. But then Jesus' face starts shining glory, and Moses and Elijah show up. And then a cloud comes in, and out of the cloud, God's voice says, this is my son, listen to him. And then it flashes, and they're all gone, and Jesus is back to normal, and they walk down the mountain and don't tell anyone. That is a great story. So this morning, we're going to talk about the one main point about it. Okay. So you might be asking... Uh, okay, Caleb, what is your one main big point about this passage? What is, the, what is your main point about? And I'm glad you asked. Good question. My one big main point this morning is about how to read the gospel stories well. So I'm not being really specific about interpreting this passage. We will get to interpreting this passage rather extensively. But I'm really using this story and interpreting this story as an example, as a guinea pig, for how to read all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John well. If we, if we see how working with this story works, it's a test case for working in a productive way with all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's what I want to talk about, using this as a test case to interpret all of the Gospels. And first, I want to say a word about what it means to read a book well, because reading a book well depends on what kind of book you think you are reading. For example, if you think the Gospels are basically kind of cookbooks, which all of us can kind of slip into thinking, we kind of think the Gospels are cookbooks, then reading them well would mean one thing. And what I mean is a cookbook gives you a list of instructions that you're supposed to follow in order to get your desired outcome. And if we think that's kind of how the Gospels work, they give us a set of application principles, they give us a set of rules to follow, and when you follow them in order, you get a souffle. If that's what we think the Gospels are trying to do, then reading them well means find all the rules, follow all the rules, collect all the life application principles for how to be a good husband and how to be a good father and how to be a good employee, and then you obey all the rules. And so we can kind of slip into thinking the Gospels are cookbooks to, for our life, and that means reading them well means follow the rules. Or we might slip into thinking the Gospels are basically textbooks, and the purpose of reading a textbook well, you've read a textbook well if you comprehend and affirm the information, like about physics or history or geometry. If you comprehend what the, what the textbook is teaching you and affirm it, you've done a good job reading. And we might slip into thinking the Gospels are trying to just teach us about our worldview. And so we believe all the correct things about Jesus. So we pass the theological midterm in the sky. And that's the purpose of the Gospels, to teach us to believe correct things. And we're slipping into treating these books as if they're textbooks. Or we might slip into thinking these books are basically novels. And the purpose of a good novel is to give you kind of a reprieve from your painful life. So you don't have to think about what's hurting. And, and the novel can kind of elevate you emotionally and give you a pick-me-up so you don't feel as bad as how you're feeling in the real world. And we might slip into thinking the purpose of these gospels is to give you individual emotional soothing. That's what they're here for. But I want to remind us that all of those versions of limiting the word of God are just that. They are limiting. The purpose of these books, the purpose of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is nothing less than to show us the glory of Jesus, to meet with and experience in an intimate and spiritual way the glory of Jesus 
in the way Peter, James, and John did on this mountain. Just as they worked to walk up this mountain and saw the glory of Jesus, that is the intention of these books. We work through the stories and think about them like a hike to see the glory of Jesus revealed to us. Now, in that revelation, there are life principles to follow, and there are theological truths to affirm, and there is emotional help that can be given. But all of those are constituent parts of what the book is about, which is to show us the glory of Jesus like it is revealed here in our story. Okay, so now, like I said, question time. Okay, so our question time is, in all of your groups, um, all of us have the natural tendency to limit God's word. First of all, see if you can remember the three ways, summarize the three ways I just mentioned about how we might limit God's word. Summarize those three ways, and then you don't have to share, but think to yourself, which of those three ways am I most naturally inclined towards limiting God's word? Not treating it like a book where I'm supposed to see Jesus, but treating it like one of these three things. You don't have to share, but at least think about it. If you want to share, you can. Does that question make sense? Am I being clear? Okay, you have two minutes, and if I don't hear you talking, I won't move on, and we'll be stuck at church forever. Okay, go. You guys are done? Yeah. Good job. <laughs> What's it? You're awesome, Kayla. Thanks. <laughs> okay, 20 seconds. Yeah. No, you don't have to share, don't worry. <laughs> I really appreciate that, though. <laughs> okay, five, four, three, two, one. Bingo. Very good. Okay, good job, everybody. So this is, I'm still in the middle of my one big main point I'm trying to make. So this is my way of, of keeping everyone on track with me, making sure I'm clear. But I'm still in the middle of my one big main point. So I want to remind us that the purpose of these books is to show us the glory of Jesus like they saw on the mountain that day. Now, I'm going to keep trudging through my one point I'm trying to make. You might be asking, okay, well then, if you're going to talk about how to read the gospel well, how do we read the gospels well? What's your, what's your strategy for reading the gospels well? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Here is my summary of, I think, how we're supposed to deal with these gospels. And the answer is to meditate thoughtfully and continually on the life of Jesus ever finding more ways in these stories that he is the fulfillment of Israel's story, the revelation of God's character, and the author of wisdom for your life. Continually meditate on these stories, ever finding more ways that Jesus in these stories is what Israel was hoping for. He's the revelation of God's heart, and he's the author of wisdom for your life. That's how to read these stories well. Now, that is a very churchy paragraph. So, I'm going to try to give some funny illustrations to make it sound less churchy and stodgy. Okay. So, first, let's look at this clause, meditate thoughtfully and continually. What do I mean by meditate thoughtfully and continually in this 
section. Well, I don't mean anything particularly precise or technical or nuanced. I just mean spend mental calories on. Dedicate your brain to actually engaging with a topic, turning it over, looking at it from different angles, taking it apart, examining the intricacies within it, finding new versions of beauty within it on purpose, spending brain energy on uh, on this, the life of Jesus that you're purposefully meditating on. That's all I mean here by meditate. Nothing too necessarily religiously specific. And I think here's a couple illustrations to fig figure out what I mean. Um, first of all, has anyone been to a museum or an exhibit where they have on display like a big giant diamond the size of your fist or your head or anything? No one's been to see this? Yeah, have you guys seen? Okay, so I got to go, to, when I was over in England, I got to an exhibit where they showed this. I don't know if it was a part of the royal jewels or not. I don't know who owned it. But there was a big giant diamond, the, like the size of, bigger than my fist, in the middle of a room under a big glass case. Like if it was a spy movie, you would go down on top and get it. And it's in the middle of the room, and it's cut asymmetrically. And there's light coming down on this big giant diamond. And it's rotating slowly on a pedestal. So all throughout the room, the light is refracting rainbows. But the rainbows are kind of different amalgamations. And the colors blur and blend together. And, and sometimes they make weird patterns. And there's like purple clouds. And it, and it refracts off the diamond, making all of these crazy shapes and versions of color. So as the diamond is turning, and as you walk around the room looking at the diamond, you could spend all day finding new versions of the rainbow coming off of this big giant diamond. That, I think, is a good physical illustration of what I mean by meditating on these stories. The story itself stays the same in the middle of the room, but as you walk around it and you turn it over in your mind and you look at it from another angle, there are ever more versions of beauty coming off of it that you didn't see before. And you could spend the rest of your life until you die seeing more refractions of glory coming off this same set of stories. That, I think, is one physical illustration of what I mean by meditate. Um, I'm going to keep going with illustrations because this is really central to my point this morning. Another illustration of what I mean by meditate is uh, puppy love. You don't have to raise your hand if you've ever been in puppy love, but does everyone know what I mean by puppy love? <laughs> where you're, the part of the relationship where you're like dating for a while and you might think you want to marry this person and you spend like all day thinking about how wonderful and amazing and unique and beautiful this person is and you have a big long list about why this is the most unique, wonderful, amazing, beautiful person who's ever lived, unlike every seven billion other people on the planet and let's say you have a date with this person you're in puppy love with at like five o'clock at night, you have dinner, what are you going to do all day before dinner? You're going to be thinking... <laughs> You're going to be thinking and meditating on this person you're in puppy love with, finding ever more things to add to your list of why they're unique and special and you want to spend the rest of your life with them. And you're going to realize you forgot something. There's more things you can add to the list. You forgot the way she folds origami badly in class when she's bored. That is so unique and special and I love it. And the way, the way she dips french fries in ice cream. Oh, that's so funny and unique and special and you have to add that to the list of ever-growing why this is unique. And the way she leaves bobby pins everywhere. That will never get annoying. That's always so beautiful and amazing. Leaving bobby pins everywhere is hilarious. And, and so you, you're meditating on this person waiting for five o'clock, ever seeing more layers of beauty to that person. Okay, that is a silly, silly, funny illustration. But that is a good example, a like visceral example for 
many of us, of what meditation is like. You are just thinking about the same thing over and over for hours and hours, seeing more layers of beauty in this person. And the fact that it's love actually does make it, it's silly, but it's a very close example to what meditating on the Bible should be like, seeing more layers of beauty. Okay, a final illustration on what I mean by meditate. I've probably beat this dead horse, but it's important. Final illustration on what I mean by meditate. It's the opposite of puppy love. It's, um, has, has anyone ever been in an argument where after the argument, you keep replaying the argument in the theater in your brain, finding all the more ways why you were right and they were stupid? Has anyone ever done something like this? <laughs> and, you, and you play it over and over, and oh, if you would have just said this thing right there, it would have crumpled them, and they would have fallen apart and said, you're right, you're a genius. And you play the argument over and over and over. And that, that there, so, so there's a vindictive, mean, personal way where you want to like, beat up the other person. That's not what I'm talking about. But in the academic sense of looking at an argument and taking it apart and looking at this set of data and and trying to find more connections and intricacies within the argument and looking at this this idea and all of the implications of that idea, not so you can just prove that they were stupid and you were smart, but you're actually taking an idea apart. I think anyone who's ever done that mental wrestling in your brain, that is a good illustration of what I mean by meditate here. You're dedicating your brain to something that you're steeping in, you're turning it over, you're finding more layers of intricacy than exist on the surface. That's what I mean by meditate. And then thoughtfully and continually means that we as Christians take time to meditate on the life of Jesus purposefully out of our schedule when it is not easy or convenient. And we say at least once a week, we are going to get together and meditate that way on the life of Jesus. And Ideally, throughout your week, you are taking time out of every single day to sit down and spend mental calories on doing that meditation to the life of Jesus, turning it over, finding more versions of beauty and connections and intricacies. You're, you're purposefully making your schedule revolve around this meditation, but then also continually. So when you get up and you leave church and you, and you get up and leave quiet time and go out into the world, which Jesus wants us to do, to go out into the world, you don't actually leave Jesus behind, but his set of stories are still in the back of your brain. And you can't really ever leave him behind because that set of stories is always with you as you're interacting in all these new situations you come across. That's what I mean by meditating on these stories thoughtfully and continually. And as you do so, you will find more and more ways that he is the fulfillment of Israel's story. So as you meditate on Jesus' stories, you'll see, oh, actually this long history of the people of Israel, they as a group who stand in, I think, as a representative of all of humanity, they as a group were yearning for and pointing forward and hoping for a day that God would send a victorious warrior who would overthrow satanic powers or would throw, or they were hoping for a day where God would send a sacrificial lamb or they were hoping for a day when God would send a truly moral, upright human or they were hoping for a day that God God would send a prophet or a priest or a king or a temple or the land or a promise or a blessing. And so all of these Jewish stories and trajectories and hopes were pointing forward to something. And as you sit on the Jesus stories, you realize that all of these things that the human family is hoping for are fulfilled in his life. And you see more and more ways that he is the fulfillment of what Jews and therefore the whole planet was was banking on. And I try to do that in my sermons to continually point out ways in which Jesus is the fulfillment of a long line of Old Testament hope. 
But not only that, as you continue to sit and meditate on Jesus' stories, not only do you see that he is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes, but he's also the revelation of God's character. If you want to know what God's heart is like, you sit and meditate on the Jesus stories. What does it mean that God is long-suffering? What does God's long-suffering heart look like? It looks exactly like Jesus crying over Jerusalem and praying for people as they crucify him. What does God's mercy and grace look like? It looks exactly like Jesus forgiving sex workers and wiping their tears away. What does God's justice and wrath look like? It looks exactly like Jesus. What does God's wisdom look like? It looks exactly like Jesus. So as you sit and meditate on the Jesus stories, you don't only see that he's the end of what humanity was hoping for, he's also the perfect revelation of God's heart. There's no part of God's heart that you don't see in these stories. Whatever God is like, it's in these stories. And you continue to meditate on these stories and turn the diamond and look at it from a different angle. And you realize that he's the author of wisdom for your life. When you go out and live in 2019, you need wisdom to live a fully human life. You will live like an animal unless there is wisdom helping you be human. And those wisdom principles to live human come from these stories. These stories are what humans were hoping for. They're the revelation of God's heart. And they are the source of wisdom for how you're actually to live. And this, this, this wrestling with these stories never ends. There's always more layers of connections to be found and make. Tim Mackey, he's the brain behind the Bible Project. I think he's a great, great resource. Everyone should... Read everything Tim Mackey says. Tim Mackey said this in an interview I recently listened to. Tim Mackey said, Engaging the Jesus stories and the biblical tradition is not signing yourself up for ease, but it is signing yourself up for something profound, and it will take a lifetime. Like Jacob wrestling that man in the night, that's the Christian mind with these stories. That story of Jacob wrestling someone in the night and pushing and pulling and asking for meaning, that is what our brains are supposed to be doing with these stories, looking for the glory of Jesus in them, like what Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain. And so conversely, I think we could say it is when we read the life of Jesus looking for one life tip, I would like my life principle, please, and then close the book. Or one right answer. I need to believe the correct things and close the book. Or I would like my emotional pick-me-up. Life is hard and I need to feel better. And then you close the book. That is the definition of reading the Gospels poorly. Not that life tips and true beliefs and emotional pick-me-ups aren't in the story, but they are part of the continually wrestling with these stories to see more layers and depth to Jesus. Okay. Question time. So I'm still in the middle of my one big point, but I need to make sure we're tracking. So the question is, can you as a group summarize this point that I'm trying to make about how to read the Gospels well as if you had to explain it to someone who wasn't here today and was asking? Can you try to summarize this point about wrestling with the text in your own words? Don't worry if you can't. It doesn't mean you're bad. It means I did a bad job talking. Okay? Did everyone get the question? You have two minutes, and I'm cutting you off, but if you don't talk, I'm going to not let you move on. Ready? Go. Go talk.
Okay, 20 seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, sorry, I know that's kind of a chewy question that probably takes more than two minutes, but it's my way of checking and making sure that I'm being clear. Okay, so thank you. I'm really getting a lot of feedback, very good. <laughs> very good, okay. So um, I'm still in the middle of my one big point about how to read the Gospels well. So let's, let's keep moving on. Okay, that's a helpful tip about how to read the Gospel stories well. But what does that have to do with the Mount of Transfiguration, you might be asking. Thank you for that nice little tip, but what does that have to do with the story you read at the beginning? Very good. Thank you for asking. Now I get to close my one big point. First of all, my point about meditating on the Gospels and wrestling with them, like Tim Mackey says, kind of relates to the Mount of Transfiguration story in a meta sense because they walk up a mountain, which is an arduous hike, to see the glory of Jesus. And we have to arduously wrestle with this text to see the glory of Jesus. So there's kind of a, a meta connection right there. But beyond that, more concrete and actually on the ground, my big point about reading the gospel stories well by means of meditation is connected to the story of the Mount of Transfiguration because in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, we find a uniquely large number of connections, revelations, and applications. Okay, so it is true of all of the Jesus stories and really all of the stories in the Bible that if you sit with it long enough, you will find a plethora of connections and revelations and applications and layers. But it is uniquely true of this story of the Mount of Transfiguration. In Bible commentaries, sometimes commentators will say of certain passages that have a lot of connections, they will say that those passages are pregnant with meaning. I have always found that to be like a little bit of a disturbing turn of phrase. It's a pregnant passage. But if we're going to keep in line with academic prose, we could say the Mount of Transfiguration is pregnant with twins. There is a lot going on in the story, a lot of connections to be made. So I'm going to just run through a few of the layers of connections that you could find if you sit and stew on this story and turn the diamond and think about it for a while. These are a few of the layers we might find. Okay? First of all, we would notice that in this story there is a son, someone is called the Son of God, with glory coming out of his face on a mountaintop, which should remind us of stories in the Old Testament. Like, for example, the first couple pages of the Bible. The Garden of Eden was on a mountaintop. Sometimes readers don't notice that, but it's very clear in the text. The Garden of Eden was on a mountaintop. And Adam, who is called the Son of God, walked in glory with God on a mountaintop. And then later on in the history of Israel, in the history of the Old Testament, Israel goes to a mountaintop and Moses goes up on top of a mountain and Moses' face shines with glory and Israel in that narrative in Exodus 10 is called, the glory, is called the Son of God. So in the Old Testament, you have a son of God on a mountaintop with glory coming out of his face and then he falls and sins. And then another son at a mountaintop with glory coming out of his face and then he falls and sins. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, you see a son of God with glory coming out of his face on a mountaintop, but he doesn't sin. He perfectly follows the Father's will, even if it means going to die on a cross. So that's one layer of connection you could make if you turn this diamond around in your head. Or you might continue sitting on it and wrestling with the story, and you would see that actually this story isn't just the Old Testament leading up to the Mount of Transfiguration, but this scene of Jesus on a mountaintop who sends his disciples out into the world 
is something that happens later in the New Testament. After Jesus rises from the dead, where does he meet his apostles in the Gospel of Matthew? Remember Matthew 28? He meets them on a mountaintop in his glory. And then he says, I know you guys were scared, but don't worry. All authority has been given into me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. So in this story, Jesus is on a mountaintop and he sends his disciples out into the world. And then in, after his resurrection, he meets them on a mountaintop and he sends them out into the world. And then what happens at the end of the book in Revelation 21? Jesus comes back and he is in his glory and he's on a mountaintop. And we, his followers, have been given new bodies and we are praising him on the mountain. And what does Jesus say? You will reign with me over creation forever and ever. And so the Bible ends with Jesus on a mountaintop sending his followers out to rule over the world. There's another layer of connection between the Mount of Transfiguration, the resurrection, and the return. Or you might turn the diamond again and find another layer of meaning. Why do Moses and Elijah show up? Well, as a lot of commentators have pointed out, Moses is sometimes kind of synonymously uh, just called the law. Moses is the law, and Elijah is called synonymously just the prophets. And so in this scene, there's Moses who is the law, and Elijah who is the prophets, and their faces aren't shining, they're just, res- they're just there, but Jesus is shining. So it's physically as if the law and the prophets are pointing to the more glorious Jesus, which is what happens in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the law and the prophets pointing to the more glorious Jesus. Here on this mountaintop is the law and the prophets pointing to the more glorious Jesus. That's another layer of meaning you might see. Or keep turning it. There's another, there's another layer you might find. Listen, it's a lesson about listening to Christ. Um, in this story, how does God start when he starts talking out of the cloud? He says, listen, imperatively. And God only says, listen, imperatively, a few times throughout scripture. You might think he would say that more because we need to hear it more. But he only says it a few times. He says it um, to Moses in Exodus, I think, 4. He says it to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He says it to David in a few of the Psalms. And there are only a few times where God says, quiet, stop, listen. Here, God says, listen. But he, he adds to it. He says, listen to my son. And so it's a spiritual lesson about you, de- you need to calm down and listen to God sometimes. But in this specific instance, it's not in general, it's listen to my son. And so it's a spiritual lesson fulfilling how God has told us to listen. And now we know who we're supposed to listen to. You can turn it and look at it as a spiritual lesson about that. Or you can turn it again. There's another layer you can see. Moses and Elijah are two unique characters in the Old Testament because those are the only two characters in the Old Testament who asked to see God's face. They both said, can we see your face? And God showed, him, uh, showed them his glory, but he said, you can't see my face and live. You'll die, like Indiana Jones. So God doesn't show them his face. But in this scene, Moses and Elijah show up And they both see the face of God. Jesus is the face of God. He is the perfect revelation of God's heart and character. So Moses and Elijah had a wish to see God that was deferred. But here on this mountaintop, it is fulfilled. It's telling us that Jesus is the face of God. Or you might turn the diamond again and find another layer of meaning. It's a lesson about the unavoidability of suffering. Remember, right before this, Jesus said, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to go die on a cross and you guys are coming with me. And the apostles did not like that. So then they go up on a mountain and Jesus is shining in glory and Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter says what? He said, we should stay here. This is great. We're going to stay on the glory mountain. We are not going to Jerusalem to die. But Jesus says, no, we have, we have to go. And he, and he flashes and they go back down to Jerusalem 
to die. It's a lesson about if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't stay up on the mountain in glory. You have to follow him out into the world where you may get hurt and persecuted. You're not allowed to stay up on the, the glorious mountain. And so it's, it's a lesson about the Christian life. Or you could turn it again. There's another layer. Um, this mountain, it doesn't say what mountain it was on, but it was probably Mount Hermon. I think there's good evidence for that. And Mount Hermon was a uh, mountain that was kind of known to be where Baal was worshipped. And children had been sacrificed on this mountain. And it's kind of like legendary that maybe even watchers and, and angels had like fallen and come down at this mountain. So it's like a demon hive. And so Jesus goes and he does this. He goes into places where, that, are, that are specifically kind of like known to be demon infest. In, in uh, John 4 and in Mark 5, he does that. And there he brings his kingdom and his light. And that might be another layer. What's going on here? He goes into a place that's specifically known for spiritual darkness and bondage and shines the glory of his kingdom there. And I could go on. Um, a tip is when pastors say they could go on, that's usually code for they ran out of things to say. But so usually, usually when I say that, I could go on. What I mean is I don't have anything more. But in this specific instance, I could genuinely go on. And this list used to be longer. But that's all I, I have right now. This is an example. This is a particularly rich example of how when you turn scripture, you see layer after layer of what is spiritually significant. Okay, so last question. Now it's the last question time. Don't worry. We're almost done with this. Was there one or two of the layers of meaning in the transfiguration story mentioned above which were new slash interesting to you? So this is just asking you if one of those layers I highlighted uh, is something you had never heard of before. Now you only have one minute. You don't have two minutes this time. One minute. Ready? Go. You guys are <laughs> You're my best group. Yeah. Okay, 20 seconds. 10 seconds. 5 seconds. 1 second. Okay. Okay, very good. If you want to talk more, we can we can all go to connection time. That's sorry. If I give you questions, I should give you more time or no time, but that's what we're doing today, I guess. So Okay, so um, I think I've closed my one big point about how what it means to read the gospel stories well is to meditate on them, turn them like the diamond, see more layers of connection. Um, and this Mount of Transfiguration story is just an explicitly rich example of how you can find layer after layer of meaning. Now, I was going to talk about one of these layers that I hadn't mentioned. There was another layer that I found that I find right now in my current walk with Jesus to be particularly moving and important and reassuring. And that might happen to us as we walk with Jesus over the years. Different layers of meaning in his story will hold different significance for us. And sometimes the spirit will use different layers of meaning to, to work on your heart more. And so I was, I was going to talk about one of those layers, but we don't have time. So we can talk about it in connection time if you want. But it's just an important truth to remember that it's important to keep wrestling with these stories because the spirit might always be doing something new with a text you've read before, but with something you haven't seen in that text yet. Okay, now we can get to my two, um, my two last quarter points, and this will each take a second. 
My first quarter point is you can't not meditate. I want to point out that what I'm saying this morning is we ought to be spending our minds and our mental energy on turning the Jesus stories over. But if you don't meditate on Jesus, it doesn't mean you aren't desiring something. It means you're just desiring something less beautiful. You can't not be turning something around in your mind. If you aren't turning Jesus stories around in your mind, it will just be something that gives you less fulfillment. This is a quote from David Foster Wallace. Um, he is also, a, he was a non-Christian author. He might have had some experiences with Christ and he talked to some pastors before he tragically committed suicide in 2008. But he was a non-Christian author who I really love and I think he had like an important prophetic voice. But he wrote this as a non-Christian. He said, I think we are all deep down religious and deep down monkish and deep down we meditate. And the myth that we don't meditate on anything only sets us up to give ourselves away to something really pernicious. For instance, pleasure. It's like if you don't believe you have to diet, you'll end up only eating candy because you have to eat something. If you don't watch what you meditate about, you'll end up thinking on only the thinnest things our culture can offer. And in America, thin can get pretty thin. Not meditating isn't an option. If you're not turning Jesus stories over, you're going to find something else and it will be thinner than Jesus. You're going to be wrestling with it, wanting it to give you pleasure, wanting it to satisfy you and change you and show you glory, but it won't. It's thin, especially if it's just stuff our culture turns out. So that's a quarter point. My second quarter point is you can't do it alone. This, this project of sitting with scripture and seeing more layers and complexity to the beauty of Jesus is something that necessarily involves community. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get or how many commentaries you write or read. You always need to be doing it in community with other people because they will find layers to the meaning that you can't ever by yourself and they'll keep you in check from finding crazy layers that aren't really there. You can't do this by yourself. Following Jesus necessarily involves not just going to church, not just like showing up somewhere, but actually participating in conversation where you're all thinking and wrestling with the text to see deeper levels of Jesus together. This is kind of a corny, cheesy thing that anyone who ever helps in youth group says, but I'll say it true too because it's true. But in youth group, it's, it is true that they will naturally find takes and angles and layers to the text that no one who's gone to seminary for a bunch of years will find themselves because it's just new, fresh eyes looking at the text. And so it's helpful to put your head in youth group every once in a while. And, and it's, it's true that you can't possibly do this alone. You will, you will have an anemic reading. You'll just find whatever you naturally see in the text, but it will always be more vital and beautiful when you do it in check with other people. This is Van Hooser in the most professorial picture he's ever taken. Um, Van Hooser says, the Christian who reads his or her Bible all alone, even if they have the help of blogs and commentaries, but who is out, uh, but who, oh, wait, okay. The Christian who reads his or her Bible all alone, even if they have the help of commentaries and blogs, who is outside of a church where questions about Jesus and the text are constantly being raised, discussed, re-raised, rediscussed, plotted over, and so on, has no more hope of growing spiritually than someone who plays their trumpet by themselves hoping to sound like a grandstand band. Wanting to read this text and see all of the layers of Jesus' beauty by yourself is like playing an instrument by yourself hoping to sound like an orchestra. You need the community of other people and there's no graduating beyond this. And so that's the end of my second quarter point. You can't not meditate and you can't 
do it alone. Uh, worship team can come on up. I'm going to end in prayer. Father, thank you for your revelation to us. You could have left us alone after we walked away from you, but you haven't left us alone. You have come to us in an intimate, personal way. You have sent your son to become one of us, and you have sent your spirit to show us your son in your word. This is an amazing gift that I hope we never get bored or never tire of recognizing. I ask your spirit to uh, remind us that what it means to engage with your son is not just to get quick answers, but to wrestle with you for an entire lifetime. And I ask your spirit to continue showing us new layers of the beauty of who you are in your son, Jesus. And I know your spirit will come and do this because your son bought the spirit for us with his own life. Amen.